0: This episode is sponsored by a donor to Artists Relief. Artists Relief is a coalition of arts grantmakers who have come together to support artists during the COVID-19 crisis. The group has created an emergency initiative to offer financial and information resources to artists. These include a $5,000 grant to qualifying applicants. Visit artistrelief.org. On this episode, we have Sneha Shah. Sneha was born in Mumbai, India, and soon discovered her passion for art. She attended the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for her BFA and managed the foundation of a leading art collector in India. She attended University College London for her master's and recently launched Curity, an online platform bringing artwork to work and home spaces through purchase and rental options. Sneha, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, Asim, for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: I'm very
2: excited to chat with you about your background because I find it very diverse and um, you're effectively bilingual in uh, um, kind of profession, so uh, I'm intrigued by that. But to start out, I'd like for you to take us way back and share with us your first memory of painting or drawing when you were a little kid.
1: Wow. Um, I guess like, it's funny, you know, most people would say it's like craft class. Uh, For me, it was actually playing with my mom's makeup. Um, I think every child gets fascinated with, you know, like the way their mom's dressed. But for me, I was just so taken by the pigments that I landed up painting all over my parents' bedroom mirror and um with all her lipsticks and foundations i just love the texture of the lipstick on that mirror and like the way it felt and i just went with it i didn't even think about what i was making and i just went with it and i think that feeling kind of stayed
2: that is such a fantastic share thank you um how angry was your mom
1: She was not pleased. I don't think I should dive into the details of it, um, but she was not pleased.
2: Was that one incident or did you keep doing it?
1: Oh, no, no, not at all. It was, I think it was almost like habit forming until they found these um, face painting oil sticks. And then I stick to my brother's face as a canvas. And we made like a play thing where we got to like paint each other's faces. So it definitely took off, but it was just more the texture of that. And then it's funny when I went to art school, like I took to oil sticks immediately, which also has a similar texture. So yeah, it was quite the process.
2: I love that. I love when we can trace our, the things that we're drawn to, to some experience in, in childhood. Now, you were born in Mumbai
0: mm-hmm.
2: and you mentioned a brother. How many siblings did you have? Do you uh, have? Just,
1: just my brother. Just two of us.
2: Is he younger than you?
1: Oh no, he's older. He's three years older than me. So yeah.
2: Also a fan of the arts?
1: um let's just say he took to science a lot more than um the arts in a way um so he's like a data scientist so pretty much opposites in that sense
2: yeah i'd say did your parents or extended family have any artistic leanings
1: so that's um that's a cool question actually because my dad actually did so he always jokes saying that you know if he if he didn't have to earn a living he'd probably be an artist which for me, this some like it's funny. I think what I'm doing with my career now kind of stems back to that saying because that frustrates me that someone can say something like that. But uh, we did start like my first oil painting lessons. We started together as like a Sunday hobby, so that's kind of when I started seriously looking at painting because my dad and I would you know we got a tutor at home who'd come and she'd teach us every Sunday had oil paint from like this little textbook and I remember being four and we had these massive canvases, and it was just the best moment of my life when we'd have that moment to do that.
2: You were four when you started oil painting with your dad. I'm so amazed that uh, you did that and you started with him.
1: I mean, he's always been very encouraging when it comes to, to like, creativity.
2: I mean, it it obviously made an impression, your dad's comment about, if I didn't have to uh, be a provider, I would be an artist. And you are um, fulfilling that uh, dream in many ways with what you're doing. You're showing him how you can do both.
1: I'd like to think so, and I hope so. I'm constantly talking to alumni of, like, my... I'm um, mater, school of the art in Chicago and like the one question I always get at admissions event is just like what career can my child have after art school and it's quite frustrating to hear that you know um, in a way because what can you not do as an artist
2: <laughs> so true it's very versatile there's no question in another podcast interview you gave you talked about how you thought you might have been dyslexic is uh mm-hmm. is that true is it ever tested or
1: um, I actually never got tested. I still haven't. Um, it's something, um, it's kind of one of those, I think when I growing up, it was one of those things that everyone considered um, a taboo, right? Like, um, I'd always lag when it came to like, in, in India, at least, um, in, when you're in fourth grade, um, a lot of the education, you see the board and you copy directly off it. I'd be on the first paragraph and my friends would already be like way be, like beyond and the, the teacher's erasing the board and I'm like grabbing the last word off it and my friends were always just like why can you never complete this and for me that was the first sign that you know something might be different the b's and the nines got confusing so I'd say there were signs but I've never actually gotten tested in that okay. sense.
2: so. Um... You make it past fourth grade obviously and you're continuing on with your education at what point did you decide i'm going to go to art school
1: wow that's a great question it wasn't until the last moment of 12th grade where i applied actually to art school and engineering programs so i still wasn't decided in that sense um i took the international baccalaureate i don't know if the ib program is something that a lot of um, people in america might be familiar with but um, you get to d- declare higher levels um and for me, I, I like mine were physics, art, and history, and' because I wanted to make sure I have that But in physics engineering, and then I have the art and the history in case I want to take a more like a liberal arts approach or a deep dive art school approach so I could actually get my portfolio together and That's it fantastic. was during Oh, thanks. (laughs) And it was during the process of actually putting my portfolio together um, in 11th and 12th that I started like really thinking about art school. But before that, I went to UPenn um, after my 10th grade to do the summer school there in in arts. Uh, They had a fabulous program where for three months it was just like an art school boot camp. And I loved every single moment of that. I feel like that was like my first serious arts education. I did ceramics, I'd learned documentary filmmaking and um, painting, which was my passion. And um, just like being surrounded by like people that enjoyed that and could talk about so many different topics. um, That was when I was just like, no, this feels right. Um, But I still was just like, you know, maybe engineering I can use that and make some crazy art from it later on if that's what my parents want. But, um, hot school gave me the, the largest, um, um, like scholarship. And so that convinced my parents to let me go for it.
2: That's fantastic. Well, and so was it a genuine pra- passion for physics or were you just doing that as a backup?
1: No, I actually, I love physics. Um, I actually even loved math. Um, up until that point, Um, like, I love the idea of finding a problem, and like, just sitting on it, and trying to solve it, until, because you knew there'd be an answer at the end of it, um, in a way, and I feel like art art making is kind of a similar process, except it's not a logical end, the way physics has, Um, but I think that process of like, just really sitting on something for a long period of time, and trying to crack it, I just love that, um, aspect of physics. I guess entrepreneurship is similar in a way as well, that I think about it.
2: <laughs> so true. Um, that's great. I love it when uh, people have these, um, are drawn to these other not so obvious uh, subjects. Um, and um, as you say, with an engineering degree, you still could have done like these large scale public sculptures like Richard Serra. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's great. Um, so you went to Chicago um, for your BFA. And um, was it, uh, you were always drawn to painting? Did you explore other media?
1: Um, again, great question. I actually started in painting, dabbled in ceramics, in designed objects, um, in performance art. I That's why I picked Chicago, because one thing that I can say is, I was so indecisive as an artist, um, and I still am. I don't like sticking to one medium or being incredibly loyal um, to a single form of making. Um, I, I've always been a conceptual thinker, so it's more about how can you learn more and experiment more. So I, I literally dabbled in so many different mediums, um, even photography, photography. Um, I kind of curated my own degree in that sense, um, art business, even art conservation, actually did a study abroad in Florence while I was, um, in Chicago at Chicago. And, um, I learned art restoration of Renaissance paintings, um, of 16th century. And that was one moment that I seriously geeked out because it was amazing to be like in the middle of Italy kind of working on these beautiful paintings from churches. Um, and like restoring them and learning the entire scientific process behind it. And I thought that itself was a form of art making at the end of it. So yeah, very diverse.
2: Absolutely. Is there an area of art you haven't touched?
1: Um, I'd say like, metal sculpture and marble sculpture are the two areas that I haven't yet touched that I'd love to get my hands on. Like every time I go to like, you know, those gilding studios. And it's partly out of fear of the machines that one uses for that. But um I've always thought that was so cool, like people who can do that. Even like Richard Serra, for instance. Oh my God.
2: <laughs> that's so great, but I, I love that you are eager to try it, even if you may not oh, yeah. have done it yet. Um, that's really fascinating. I, I love that. Do you still practice art? Are you still making, creating?
1: Um, I, so after I graduated from art school, I will say that my practice slowly died down. But um, over the last year, kind of building curating, visiting so many artist studios has been incredibly inspiring and you know i'm excited to kind of say that i have started in a way kind of like begun to reinvent my creative process
2: good that's important we all need these uh, creative outlets and it sounds like uh, you in particular are really drawn by by that um so don't uh don't lose that so um Of the few jobs you had after graduating with your BFA, I'm most interested in the one where you were back in Mumbai with the uh, Piramal Art Foundation. Mm -hmm. And it it feels like um, putting that private collection into a lobby of an office building was kind of the genesis for curate.
1: In a way, it was. Um, I think more than that, it was the reaction of a lot of people and seeing the benefit it brought. So the Piramals have one of the largest art collections um, of modern Indian and contemporary Indian art in India and um, part of my job as um, the manager of the foundation was to kind of organize shows and kind of curate the collection but also collaborate with other collections um, across India um, to have these curated shows, the kind that temporary ex- exhibitions um, have at larger museums across the world. Um, but more than that, it was also curating art within workspaces, right? Like this is not a museum. Like this is the lobby of like a very busy office in Mumbai where actually a lot of people had not had that kind of access to art before or didn't even know the value of something like that, right? Um, And all of a sudden, we're bringing in these beautiful canvases down to the lobby. People are obviously curious about what's going on. Um, People didn't understand the kind of money that was going into kind of buying these works. So a lot of it was about education. Um, When you, you know, part of um, the program that we launched while I was there was touring People from all levels of the organization. You know, the cleaners were handling the artworks. So it was very important for us for them to understand this. You know, why is this valuable? Why is this part of our cultural heritage? And um part of this was tours that we'd run with them where we'd kind of take them around, we'd ask them, you know, we tell them stories about the collection. Um, they'd actually get to understand the works. We actually had a show on fakes and forgeries, even for them to understand the difference between, you know, real works versus prints versus stereographs, and you know why you don't touch canvas paintings but why you can handle frames in a certain way but it was more like you know they got so excited by the entire process that asking if they can bring their kids to the museum so even on the weekends people were coming into work with their children this time to learn more about the works on display. Uh, We started working closely with human resources as well for um, some departments of the company to see, okay, how can the art there um, be curated in a way that actually motivates the employees, right? Like what if we got employees of a team to actually pick an artwork and make that a celebratory thing for the employee because they've done really well this term and they actually get to pick the art that goes in their office. And that, yeah, that was kind of when I saw the reaction, the positivity that came out of that kind of experience, for me, it was just like, this doesn't have to be something that's only for, you know, high end or high value, modern contemporary art, you know, what if any small office across the world, have this opportunity to have art curated for them, in their offices with local artists, you know? What if we can create like kind of sustainable ecosystem? And that's how Curatee was kind of born. So you're right, there was a genesis and a thought process leading through.
2: It feels, if I were to hazard a guess, that the most exciting part of your job is when you are able to facilitate somebody having an emotional reaction to art.
1: Oh, Do hands down, well? oh hands down. hands down. Um, that moment when you kind of put the art up and all of a sudden you have everyone peering to the door of the office trying to see, you know, what's behind it, what's going on there. Um, it's just amazing because even like the non-believers, the ones that were against the project, all of a sudden see that boring meeting room that no one likes to enter, kind of become something meaningful because the entire team went into kind of making that happen. So yeah, that, that definitely is. It's when you know that, you know, you found that product market fit, as people like to call it. Um, well, now you know it feels it.
2: like you're diluting the <laughs> blissful nature of that experience.
1: No, that's fair. Um, no, Let, let's I talk mean,
2: about it more in terms of approaching Nirvana.
1: <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, it is, it is a bit like that. <laughs>
2: That's an exalting experience, and you're bringing that to people. It's like you're a concierge for art.
1: I guess, in a way, yeah. Um, I like I like the word curators a lot.
2: Um, it's really nerve wracking to start a business. Um, what gave you the motivation and ultimately the the, the drive to to do that? I,
1: that's a great question. Um, so. I guess for me, right, um, there's people that love working and kind of growing up a ladder at a, at a certain pace. When you kind of join an organization that's much larger, you understand that, okay, this is my growth ladder. In six months, I'm going to get reviewed, and, and this is going to happen, and then I'm going to get a salary bump, and I'm going to get the manager role. For me, um, I quickly realized, you know, working in, the many jobs I've had, be it in the gallery world, be it in the, um, you know, working for a corporate collection, um, that I always wanted to grow faster than the organization would let me. And I'd keep fighting that top and it wouldn't always be received in the best possible way because there are structures in place to make sure certain things happen. And I guess for me, like, that was the moment when I was just like, no, I need, to, I need to start my own thing.
2: So you found it a bit limiting, a little stifling.
1: A little bit, yeah. Um, and also, because I believe I'm a very creative person in a way. I mean, um, not to flap my own feathers, but for me, it's going to have been like, you know, when I have an idea, I have this hunger to run with it. Um, if I know it's going to work and for me like even the bureaucracy of like asking 10 different people before I can even get a foot it's kind of exhausting so for me like that exhilaration of just being able to do it like that's the best part of entrepreneurship in a way
2: fantastic Um, that was really great and a very inspiring way to frame it Um, you know I think What I love about your approach and why I think you're going to be so successful is that you have that entrepreneurial spirit, but you also understand artists and you advocate for them. And in particular, I'm thinking about the gallery that you started while you were still in school, because you felt like your art artist peers were not getting the visibility they deserved. Share more about that.
1: Yeah, so um, in my final years um, at SAIC, um, I kind of took the initiative of really thinking about when you're in art school, right, the biggest moment of your life is when you have an exhibition. And as a student, for us, we had holiday art sales, which were great because they'd get the money in. Like, it's amazing to have a critique at the end of semester, kind of to get that exposure and that kind of comment about your art. But Everyone wants a bit more of them that we actually managed to get physical gallery spaces um, to gallery spaces across our campus to really showcase student art. And we wrote a charter, um, five directors were appointed, um, including myself. We had 30 volunteers as students that would, like, help us publish um, information about the shows and get the word across campus that this is happening, guys. All of a sudden, it just felt like we were, like, a real gallery. I think that was my first entrepreneurial um, experience, and we had 10 exhibitions a semester. Incredible, because when I graduated, like, I knew I had, like, five jobs lined up in New York at some of the top galleries because of that experience. So...
2: Amazing. That was great. That's fantastic. I, I don't think there's really anything that you do without throwing yourself into it completely.
1: <laughs> um, I, I I do get a bit obsessive when it comes to projects I take on. I like to see them through to completion <laughs> in a way.
2: A euphemism for uh, obsessive is passionate.
1: Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> so, accept that. And my decision to come to UCL was actually largely um, more from like an academic standpoint, um, there aren't too many great programs, I I would say in India, at least for me, for what I wanted to pursue, um, that kind of exists when it comes from like a from an education standpoint. So for me, UCL um was was and the fact that QAT even started here was kind of by coincidence because of like the way it's entrepreneurship is set up in the UK just made it a lot easier.
2: So you're in London after your master's and you've made the decision to launch Curiti. Um, You shared an anecdote about interviewing fellow tube passengers or pitching them. I just would love to hear that story from beginning to end.
1: Okay, so um, when I started Curity right? Um, I'm here on a visa, part uh, of applying for a startup visa um, in the UK is you really have to have a validated business. Now, if you try to go and talk to 30 CEOs of companies, it's going to be very difficult and time consuming. So for me, I want to numbers. I want to know who loved art, who didn't love art, what does London feel like when it comes to it? So... Um, I had this wild idea after kind of talking, reading this book called The Mum Test, who I think, which is the book that I think any entrepreneur should read. It's about how to not make sales and how to actually kind of think about doing it right um, and asking the right questions. So I, would, I spent two days on the tube because I knew I needed these numbers of like, you know, the surveys I need filled, I needed the answers to prove it. So yeah, I spent two days on the London tube talking to random people, especially I realized that, okay, the morning is probably not the best time because everyone's grumpy, they haven't had their coffee yet. But in the evening, when everyone was just exhausted, they'd be so happy and energetic to talk to me about art. So over two days, I interviewed 200 people on the London Underground. I went um, on the DLR, because that's when all the bankers, Canary Wharf are. Um, I strategically decided which tube stations to be at. Yeah, and it was a very interesting experience, definitely, in terms of giving you a whole wide variety of people to talk to. I spoke to people who were like janitors to everyone, um, to people that were like in exec positions at larger companies, because that's the beauty of London. Everyone takes a tube.
2: That's fantastic. I really applaud the courage and the ingenuity it took to do that. Um, I can't think of many people who would. (laughs) So kudos. It's very inspirational. Um, talk to us about your mission, because I think it's a brilliant mantra, uh, no naked walls.
1: Okay. Um, so it's quite, it's quite a simple mission. It It, it is what it is in a way. No naked walls. It's just, if you've walked, okay, so part, after talking to 200 people across the London underground tubes, uh, what I did was, um. I visited a lot of offices. Um, i try and get as many meetings with random people just to be able to enter the workspace, right? This was named c Loves, it was just, I'd go to the reception being like, hi, who's in charge here? And kind of go up the elevator. And it's amazing that most of these offices, apart from the beautiful architecture or some not so beautiful architecture, they were all, empty apart like the walls were always empty apart from like the logo that just goes up on the top which with the company is just like okay where so and so you know people talk so much about culture about you know this idea of belonging about community sure you have a ping pong table so does five other companies but what gives that sense of security to employees coming in there that tomorrow this company is still going to be standing here right um you might even have posters, you know, being like, hey, "These are our values." Like, but it's so easy to take something like that down. And for me, like, that's what no naked wall stands for. It's more like no one lo- likes staring at a naked wall ninety percent of their workday. As employees, we spend eighty percent of our working hours, um, pre-COVID days, in the office, staring at the walls. And it's so important for people to realize that. That. That's not healthy. Like that is affecting well-being, and so for me, part of you know this idea of curating is like this, this, this starting a revolution where we say, okay, no naked walls. Let's let's get them hung. Let's get some artwork nailed on there
2: that's fantastic thank you so much um when you are pitching these companies do you champion the mental health aspects of art from so the, the kind of uh, wellness attributes and properties of experiencing art
1: um yes of course i think a lot of companies um need to understand that you know art the, Let's go back in time, right? Let's think about the Uffizi. Like, what what is the meaning of Uffizi, right? It was an office. It was a Medici office. The idea of art and workspace go way back. Um, Libraries used to be where people study. Libraries also used to be where people could buy, like, we could borrow art from. I think it goes back to this idea that people have forgotten is that we as humans are territorial, right? Like, we love knowing that we occupy space. The first thing you do, you know, in a co-working space, you get your coffee mug and you put it down. you like, this is my desk. My jacket is here. I was here first. We make these claims. So kind of thinking about the walls in the office, right? Realizing that if you don't get, let your employees feel like they have a say in this, how are they going to feel at home? That's the well-being aspect of it. It's kind of understanding us as human beings at the end of the day, what do we need? And how does art fulfill that fundamental aspect? We even take a more scientific approach to this, right? Like color, there's so much color theory out there that's kind of proven that actually certain colors um, kind of add a certain stimuli, right? Looking at red gets you more active. That's why Red Bull has picked that color for their their ad campaigns and for their Coca-Cola for the same reason.
2: That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges. Um, If you had to identify a a low point or maybe the lowest point, uh, what would you say that's been?
1: I would definitely say that I think having all our clients out of their offices that we've beautifully curated, I would have loved if if that part of this didn't happen right in a way where if we could have still brought art to the workspaces of people hopefully we bring it to the homes of people now but
2: yeah that's the inspirational uh, takeaway that you'll expand it to all their spaces <laughs> not just their work walls that was really fantastic so um Andy Warhol said that being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art would you agree with him
1: Oh, um, definitely. I think being I would I would say that my art practice has kind of taken a back stance in a way because I think running a business, you have to have so many caps, um, hats or, or hats um on your head in a way. Um and learn so many different skills and you have to be the person that motivates everyone else. So I would say definitely the different layers do that, but that's a very deep quote for sure. <laughs> that's
2: fantastic.
0: Snare thank you so much. It's
1: been a pleasure to be in conversation with you. So Likewise.
2: thank you. Absolutely.
0: Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.